Hey, welcome to the Africa podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on the series, we have Naila Farouqi, who is the head of the Arab Foundations Forum and used to be involved with the Sesame Workshop. So this conversation is kind of split into two. The first half is all about philanthropy, fundraising, development, and what that world looks like in the Arab world. And the second half is all about TV, Sesame Street, and what it looked like when Naila was involved with bringing Sesame all across the Arab world. I hope you enjoy it. As always, if you'd like to support Africa, go over to our website and look how you can support in the many different ways. Thanks so much. Welcome to a live taping of the Africa podcast. Our special guest today is Naila Farouki, who is a Peabody award-winning executive who's built a career across several continents. In 2014, Naila assumed the role of the CEO of the Arab Foundations Forum, AFF, a regional membership-based association of foundations and other uh, philanthropy actors working across the Arab region. Prior to her role at AFF, Nela served 13 years at the iconic Sesame Workshop in New York, where she was responsible for project management, content production, and other creative elements of Sesame Workshop's multimedia co-productions of Sesame Street in 17 countries, which we are going to talk about today. Nela, welcome to Afikra. Thank you, Mikey. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with um, what you think your job is. I'm really curious, <laughs> Naila, if you were to explain what you do to somebody who is not from your world at all, what do you think you do? So um, first of all, I, just, I should contextualize this by saying that when I took the job at AFF, mm -hmm. I had never worked in the, in the philanthropy or development sector before. Um, and so I didn't really know what the job was. I just knew that I needed to work because I had taken a hiatus of uh, about three years. And I knew that I wanted to work something related to the region, possibly, um, because I'd been living in the U.S. for about almost 20 years at the time. And I kind of felt like I wanted to get back um, in touch with the region in a, in a more kind of meaningful way. So when I explain it, and this is a good question because it's almost been nine years and to this day, my mom still can't describe to anyone <laughs> what it is that I do. So she, she would, I try to like, you know, make it as simple and as accessible as possible for my mother. So basically, I run a network that brings together uh, development actors and philanthropy actors working across the Arab region, which is a little bit of an evolution of what AFF used to be. So AFF, originally was founded really to kind of just bring together grant-making foundations and grant-makers in the Arab region and across the Arab region. And it was a, a very kind of, you know, um, a strong group of uh, colleagues who had been working together and had, you know, recognized that they were facing many similar challenges, but it remained a small-ish group, right? Yeah. And so when I came on in 2014, I sort of over the next, you know, the, the next couple of years started realizing that, first of all, post 2011, the development and philanthropy sector in the region had really evolved, had changed some, in, you know, in some ways just by necessity, um, given Arab Spring kind of stuff. And then in other ways, just, you know, by virtue of evolution, uh, things evolve over time and, you know, social structures and civil society structures evolve over time. So we've kind of over the last couple of years expanded and broadened what it is that we actually do. So, yeah. you know, I run this network that brings together all these diff different actors. The actors have expanded in terms of who they are. So they include um, organizations that grant make, but also that seek grant funding. 
um, and some other social enterprises, uh, research institutes, universities, independent consultants that work in development. So really anyone that has an interest in um, being connected to a network across the Arab region that works on uh, strategic philanthropy and doing better giving, making our giving uh, more impactful and better, stronger. Yeah. Amazing. So I, I'm glad that you said that phrase, because um, for those who can't see the screen who are listening to the podcast, I have a screenshot um, from the website on the on the screen. And it says, in support of strategic philanthropy in the Arab region, changing the way we give. So I'm going to ask you a question. How did we used to give in the Arab world and why did it need changing? So one of the things like, you know, I, um, I'm often asked to uh, present on behalf of the network and on behalf of the region because there is no other network across the Arab region that does specifically what AFF does. Um, and so a lot of times the audience is kind of, you know, it's a mix of international and people who are interested in learning a little bit more about what the giving uh, landscape looks like in across the region. And so I always start out with this very, very... Um, and for me, I feel like it's a pretty impactful statistic or uh, description. We're 22 countries, which makes up about 10% of the world's geography, with about 410 million people, give or take. Um, and the first ever recorded act of philanthropy in the world was recorded in Fez, Morocco, by a woman, Fatima al-Hibri, um, who endowed a university, which it's the University of Karawin, which is still active to this day. Okay, so that is the first ever recorded official yeah. act of philanthropy. So often when people say like, you know, oh, tell us about, you know, this kind of like nascent philanthropic sector that's burgeoning in the Arab region. I'm like, la, 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 la. No, it's not nascent. We invented philanthropy <laughs> in its kind of form. So we've done it in a little bit of an ad hoc way. And one of the biggest kind of misconceptions, I think, around uh, the, the the reason why people may think that um, Arab philanthropy is sort of new um, is that we have a lot of anonymity in our giving, right? So, you know, because a, a lot of Arab philanthropy is related to Islamic giving and other religious forms of giving, there tends to be a higher value placed on it the more anonymous it is. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the things. I mean, I'll give you like another very brief example, just based on the fact that you also work um, in in Beirut, in Lebanon. So, you know, I don't know if people recognize or realize this, but Lebanese um, NGO law and Lebanese giving law restricted to 18 different forms of giving that are all religiously based. There is no secular way to give in Lebanon. Um, what do you what do you mean by that? So in terms of official giving, if you were to give to an official charity, you have to choose one of the 18 different uh, formats to give because each one is related to one of the 18 religious sects that are recognized in Lebanon. But if you wanted to give secularly, it would have to be informal. It would be exchange of money from one. <laughs> I need to ask what this, what this means. I want so, to give to... Uh, to um, I want to support homelessness in Lebanon. Right. Support the fight against channel, homelessness. You'd have to channel that money through one of the 18 uh, venues and channels. You wouldn't okay. just you wouldn't be able to give without um, without a, a religious uh, affiliation. Interesting. OK. So that's one huh. of the you know, that's one of the kind of fun facts that people don't realize. 
And so a couple of years ago, we engaged with some of our members at uh, in Lebanon and actually presented a draft proposal to um, whatever parliament was there at the time, which was very short-lived, um, and had actually the support of a, of a member of parliament to introduce a law, a bill, that would kind of be an amendment to the constitution to allow for a secular uh, channel to give. It went very far, but then, of course, the government dissolved. And so that kind of conversation died. Yeah. Okay, so I want to ask this idea of strategic philanthropy, because I feel like in the Arab world, I mean, um, there's like, there almost, I feel like there are two types of ecosystems in the Mm -hmm. Arab world. There are places that are kind of failed states um, where a lot of organizations rely heavily on foreign foreign funding and government funding, or and they're they can't really manage uh, a working business model. Mm-hmm. And then there's other places where there is enormous amounts of government funding and 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 state backing of the arts and culture sector or the um, education sector. And both of them, both those models don't seem like they actually work long term. Neither of them seems sustainable. Um, is there something that I'm missing? Is there a better, more strategic way of doing this type of type of funding so that people can finally get out of those loops and actually operate um, sustainably long term? I mean, the, that the hope is that part of what we can do is advocate um, for policies that make that uh, a possibility, right? So, I mean, one of the things that I kind of say, you know, jokingly, but not really jokingly, is that we've managed across the Arab region, almost irrespective of which country you're talking about, to take the N out of the NGO. Um, and so, you know, in, in many cases, if if we look at kind of the map, when I look at the map and think about what, you know, what, what, what are the different types of um, of structures and infrastructures that we have across the region, I sort of split it up roughly into three different areas, right? So kind of North Africa, you know, Tunisia, Algeria, um, sometimes Egypt is not really in- included in that, but uh, Morocco. And then look at Egypt and the Levant as another kind of block that sort of functions similarly and has similar restrictions. Um, although in more, in some cases now the restrictions are, are becoming more and more similar and more and more restrictive. And then the GCC, which functions pretty separately from the rest of those two areas. Um, so... But across the board, you don't really find any any NGO sector that is really, truly non-governmental and has no oversight from the government in the way that is an impediment. I'm not talking about absolutely zero oversight, because obviously that doesn't exist anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But and it also isn't necessarily in support of the sector, but is often kind of, you know, positioned in opposition to. Um, and that that restriction uh, and that kind of opposition varies from from um, region to region and country to country, but it skews more towards the unenabling rather than enabling. Yeah. So, I mean, what does it look like long term? I mean, I, I don't I don't expect you to predict the future, but you know, I was going through the AFF website and I'm looking through some of the reports, and they are. You know, in 2018, um, 2019, that's where a bunch of the reports are. You know, what is the state of giving um, strategic philanthropy across the region? Are there trends that 
um, folks would be surprised by? Um, I don't know if it necessarily would be surprising because it kind of tends to maybe mirror some of what's globally happening. Um, but I think one of the pivotal moments for Arab philanthropy really was post-Arab Spring. Um, and that was, again, like, you know, necessity being the mother of invention type of thing. I mean, we, we saw a very innovative kind of approach to giving and to, and to galvanizing giving across the Arab region, but specifically in some of the countries where, you know, more of the activity was happening. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, Egypt has won, uh, but even, you know, Jordan, Bahrain, uh, Yemen, Syria, um, where, you know, people had to get a little bit kind of creative about how they, they yeah, how they galvanized their, their com communities to give. And so that kind of brought in, I think, a little bit more of, you know, people thinking about different ways to categorize their philanthropy. So that, sh you know, that showed um, a prevalence of social enterprises, which I'm not always 100%. Like, I think it's a good thing because it diversified also the landscape. But for some people, it was the only way they could do it. And then it, that in itself also was not sustainable because there's no infrastructure in some of these countries to support social enterprise models. Right. And so, you know, to, to, to support them in terms of infrastructure, to support them in terms of funding and to support them in terms of regulation. So people yeah. were creating these social enterprises and then, you know, not able to sustain them because they had no support to, to, to ensure their sustainability. Um, so that's kind of I mean, so I don't know that I would say any of the trends have been surprising, but they are they're definitely there's definitely a lot of progress. So, I mean, we're seeing. A lot of, for example, if we're looking at the GCC, we're seeing, um, you know, a, a proliferation of family offices that are looking at kind of multi-generational giving and next-gen giving and a bit more future planning, which wasn't always the case in the past. Um, yeah. If, you know, so, and then I think from what we've felt in terms of our impact as a network is that we've definitely seen two things that were not there when I started. So the first is, a lot more of a concerted effort of our network and members of the extended. So beyond just our members in collaborating and really making an effort to collaborate and to co um, you know, co fund or kind of do something that's a little bit more uh, across, you know, various uh, organizations. That's one change that we've definitely seen. And the second is around data. I mean, I can say it's a huge generalization, but I will say it confidently. Like 2014, I couldn't get a single, a single one of my members to share their data. In 2022, we're launching three massive data projects that have had so much traction that we've been able to launch three projects. So that's a huge... So what type of data are, um, you're talking about, just for people who are unfamiliar, and I'm uh, quite frankly unfamiliar. So you're talking about donor data, you're talking about um, impact data, you're talking about um, number of, uh, you know, number of um, grantees. What are, the, what are the, the data points that these types of foundations used to protect, you know, closely and now are willing to share? So honestly, for the most part, Mikey, I mean, people protected everything. So even, no, I'm serious, like even down to what sectors they were working in. Um, and a lot of Why? That, what, lot was, of that, what was their, what's the thinking? There's a couple of different reasons. First is there was no expectation of that kind of transparency. Okay. 
Um, that's number one. Number two, there in some cases is danger in that kind of transparency. So like, again, an example, Lebanon, um, you know, we had a member of our network at one time that, um, who, that works specifically with LGBTQ uh, populations. And that's dangerous for them to even mention that they do that. So what their outward facing kind of um, uh, website or whatever it was that explained what they did, just talked about, oh, you know, vulnerable populations. And it would talk about like refugee population, but never mentioned the core of what they actually do on a day-to-day basis, which is saving people in domestic violence situations and um, LGBTQ youth and, and other, um, gotcha. other populations. So that's one. So, and then the last was, honestly, people just, they wanted to hoard their data. They were like, no, 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 we, why should we tell everybody else how much we spend? Why should we tell? And so we've had this conversation really, I mean, very, very purposefully over the last eight years to explain why we think sharing that information is not only the right thing to do in kind of, you know, in an abstract sense, but the right thing to do in the sense for how you will become better givers, how you will become a stronger foundation and how the sector will be stronger. And then also it What's the, pitch? To, the pitch is around advocacy for the sector. So we've said, number one, exist and without fail on a regular basis, people will reach out to us, whether they're part of our membership or just part of the larger network to say, Naila, who's doing X, Y, Z in Yemen? I'm like, you know, if you shared your data, you would have known this by now. You wouldn't even have to call me. You would just go on a, a database and check and cross-reference uh, you yeah. know, across sectors and be able to find the people that you want, number one. Number two, we had started talking with some of our members, Mikey, and then realizing that in same countries, people were working in the same that. community, in the same community and benefiting the same populations and had never heard of each other. So we're like, clearly, yeah. if we shared even the most basic who, what, when, where, how of this sector, you would have a lot less duplication. And yeah. a lot more impact overall, right? So that's kind of the basic, basic pitch. I, I'll be very honest with you. Like at the very beginning, I was a little bit like this ranting, crazy lunatic who was like, what do you mean you don't have, <laughs> what do you mean you don't share your data? What do you mean there's no, and then I realized that I was really putting people off. They were just like, like calm down. <laughs> uh, this is a very sort of Western expectation. And you're bringing these very Western expectations um, to our region, we have this, I, this this concept of anonymity because of our, uh, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing and vice versa, all of that. So I calmed down and then sort of changed the pitch a little bit to say, look, we're coming out of the Arab Spring. We're coming out of this kind of whack-a-mole of revolutions and, uh, and, and disruption. And yeah. we have this opportunity to really, really affect and affect the landscape in a way that is completely revolutionary. And the only way that we can do it is a, if you allow us as a network, the opportunity came in to represent you from an advocacy perspective with numbers. Like, how am I going to go to governments and be like, you need to change the law. I don't know what the law is, but you need to change it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. I want to talk a little bit about the things people care about and how much that has shifted over your tenure um, so on the screen, we have uh, a graph from one of your reports about which SDGs, uh, sustainable development goals, um, the, the sort of member foundations care about and are working on. Um, and it's sort of quite evenly distributed. There are some things that are not represented at all, but you see things like quality education being high, no poverty being high, things like decent work and economic growth. Um, 
But I'm wondering if there are any, the story behind these numbers. Are there, uh, you know, is there movements? Are there new trends that you're seeing that uh, might be interesting? Yeah. So, I mean, actually, that's a perfect question because it's very timely, particularly when I look at the graph and I see that SDG 13 around climate action is one of the lowest. And in fact, um, this is a survey, uh, a needs survey that we did probably at the end of last year. Um, and that would have been before there was an announcement that COP27 and 28 were taking place in the region. I guarantee you that today, if we did that needs assessment, the climate action would be much higher on people's uh, priority list because the sense of urgency of, oh my God, we are going to have to be representing our region and philanthropy is going to have to be represented at both of these COPs. I just came from COP27. We were not represented. I mean, I, I think I was one of the only um, Arab philanthropy representatives there. So that would change definitely. And then some of the other kind of between the lines of why no poverty, you know, uh, quality education, I mean, even decent work and economic growth, the, the between the lines on that trend would be first, those are safe for the most part. Um, they are aligned with government priorities. So that's part of how a lot of these foundations are able to function without um, impediment because they align um, and are safe. But the ones that are interesting are the ones on the, uh, well, the one on the very far right, which is peace, justice, and strong institutions. That's interesting yeah. because that's not safe necessarily. Um, I mean, I'll tell you, Mikey, like, frankly, without any, I mean, without exaggeration, like we don't ever talk about, oh, you know, we're going to work on democracy or, you know, democratic principles or yeah. even good governance is a kind of uh, sketchy term. So that one's interesting for me. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's, but I wonder like if we were to do, and we do this at the end of every year. So Walid, who's actually with us on the call, today is our is my network and relationships director and he would you know he'll be sending out one of these uh, and i'm curious to see what the change will be i predict the yeah. climate action will be higher i want so is this um what they say they're focusing on or is this what their money is going to this is what their money is going to okay this is mostly what they're yeah i mean not necessarily across the board, but definitely the ones that are very high on the graph, that's where people's money is going. Yeah. In other cases, it's what they would be interested in engaging with and learning more about. Um, so again, the climate action one is the one that stands out the most to me because yeah. I know that that will be a different graph today than it was last year. In a lot of, in a lot of the countries in the region, um, the state is the largest funder of these types of organizations, which is why you said, you know, we take the N out of NGO. Um, it, the state actors are not members of AFF. Um, no. How, you know, what is the relationship between the, the sort of philanthropic center, uh, a sector that's not associated with the state and state giving? And how, how do they complement each other if they do? And how do they actually conflict and create friction? There's not a lot of connectivity between the two. Um, and I mean, if they do anything at all, it's in conflict, not necessarily in concert with. So, I mean, that's that's been kind of, you know, that's that's part of the frustration is that, first of all, we've had a you know, we've had this this issue of, of wanting and needing to present the philanthropy sector in a way that is amicable, but also not going to be folded under 
state institutions, right? So like, I'll give you even when I was going to COP in the very beginning last year from, you know, the end of last year when I knew that we would need to be present at COP and we're having, you know, conversations and people pulling us in. And I had to consciously tell people, please don't put me in touch with the COP presidency. Please don't put me in touch with, you know, the Egyptian government because I don't want to be working under their auspices. Not for any reason. It's not that I have anything against it. I mean, you know, please do the best COP you can do. But I have to be somewhat independent if I'm going to actually effectively um, uh, represent the sector. And if I'm going to effectively yeah. advocate for it, if I'm doing the bidding of the government, then I'm no longer effective. And so in a way, you know, this is part of the reason why we've taken our registration out of the region. We yeah. dissolved AFF as it used to be. I mean, you know, it was it had it was registered as an operating branch in Jordan and we just dissolved that entirely and taken our registration to the U.S. so that I'm not bound by a particular country. And I'm also not, you know, in opposition to anything. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> for yeah, all yeah. the reasons that we know why I wouldn't be vocally. Um, yeah, just trying yeah. to keep some kind of autonomy. So speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, autonomy, um, I wonder, you, you mentioned also there are some members who are not, donors they are um, they're also sort of grantees or the types of organizations that would be interested in, in the philanthropic se uh, sector because they are they apply for funds all the time um there's there's this interesting trend across the Arab world where there are these non-state actors these social enterprises or charities that completely exist off foreign funding of these uh you know um these huge institutions, uh, charity, uh, foundations around the world. I wonder, is there advice that comes from AFF? Like, hey, this is the sustainable model. This is what it looks like to run a film festival in, uh, in Tunisia. Um, this is the right balance of funding that you're taking from, you know, uh, North American and European uh, agencies. And this is the right ratio from local agencies this is how much you should be this is the right amount of earned revenue um in order to become a sustainable business long term i feel like no one talks about this and in a in a region filled with these types of organizations i would love for people to start talking about it so i may as well ask you first yeah and that's an and that's a, an excellent excellent question um and also an excellent business idea um but so <laughs> You know, I mean, you run a, an organization that is also a grant-seeking organization. So you know there's not a lot of institutional funding that comes out of the region to the region, right? So the region gives a ton of money, absolutely. But it tends to be very locally focused and very kind of sector-specific. So, you know, we have foundations in Egypt that give to education, and that is all they do. They give money to education. They do a phenomenal job. But once you go to them as an organization like AFF to date, I mean, AFF has been around since 2006. To this day, AFF has not received a single dollar, not a single dollar from an Arab organization. And yeah, I mean, it's yeah. funny, but it's really, it's kind of shockingly sad. So, yeah. and, and this is the thing, I mean, minus our membership fees. So I want to be fair, like people pay their membership fees, you know, God bless them. But like institutional support 
core funding so that we can continue our activities, we don't get that kind of money. We're starting to change that a little bit, Mikey. So we've done two things that I think will help us answer the question that you've just asked. The first is that we've created a membership tier that we did not think anyone was going to go for, but we created a membership tier that is called supporting member. That means that they give $10,000 or above. And that, that membership means that they are uh, acknowledged on our website as a supporting member, kind of as a donor, right? Because the only kind of unrestricted money that we're able to get on a regular basis is our membership funding. Yeah. So we were surprised and so incredibly pleasantly surprised to find that in one year, which is 2022, three members alone took advantage of this supporting membership and made up 50% of the membership fees and membership money that we've ever had in the past when we had 40 members because our fees were so different. Yeah. Now that showed me, and okay, there's an inclination towards wanting to support AFF to remain and be sustainable, which is also, you know, I mean, a wonderful kind of testament to the kind of the, the benefit people think they get out of AFF. Okay. That's yeah. one thing. And then the second thing that we did is that we launched a consulting service. So one of the ways that we want to be a little bit more sustainable and not have to depend on the Ford Foundations and the OSF and the Gates and et cetera, is to have some programs that we offer that are monetized in a way. And that yeah. came from exactly what you're saying. So we get a lot of these questions about, am I doing this right? Is this the right model? Is this? And there's so much time and effort that, I mean, I'm glad to give because that's the whole point of us having these insights is to be able to share them. But then it ends up being that spending so much time doing that for free and we're not really getting not able to focus on the things that we need to focus on to get us money so we thought why don't we combine these two things with each other um and actually start a consulting service there's a ton of consultants around the region who don't necessarily always want to do their consulting individually they'd rather do it under the umbrella of an organization so that somebody else can take care of the logistics and the admin and whatever and they can just do their yeah. job so we've done that and we've already, I mean, I think today we have, I think it's four consulting projects in the pipeline, um, which vary across, in some cases, it's very close to what you're talking about. So we're actually yeah. working with an organization that is looking exactly to that. How do we become, um, from a business sense, sustainable and others that are looking for other kind of strategic mapping um, advice. But then the other key reason why we launched the consulting service is also to monetize the, the the capacity of like the brain capacity and the intellectual capacity that we share with external partners. So yeah. international NGOs, you know, McKinsey's and, you know, Brookings and all those guys who come and say on a weekly basis, can I pick your brain for an hour? Give us all your contacts, give us all your information. And then they go make hundreds of thousands of dollars off of that, which I just thought, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. We're not giving away all of this. These are like, you know, tried and tested and nurtured relationships over time. I'm not just giving them to people so they can go make money off of it while we sit here begging <laughs> month to month. Yeah. Okay. I want to switch. Uh, oh, before we switch to Sesame, I want to ask you one last question. In Europe and the U.S. and maybe other parts of the world, uh, or I should say North America, um, a lot of philanthropy uh, giving, a lot of philanthropic given is, giving is um, very closely tied to tax breaks. Um, and this isn't the case anywhere in the Arab world. So when you speak to people who have these huge foundations, 
Um, I don't know another way of saying it. Why do they do this? Yeah, the motivation. Um, honestly, it's, I mean, it, 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 this is very interesting because it comes from the drive to do good, literally. I mean, at, and in many cases, it's, it's a religious kind of cultural, you know, a culturally religious motivator. So people just know and they are raised with this concept of we somehow have to give back. And, you know, you have to look at it also, like, culturally speaking, if you look at the difference between the Arab region and other, you know, other regions in the global south versus the global north, we don't have these very individualistic kind of uh, socialization, right? We're not socialized to be, oh, it's just me and my nuclear family and that's it. Whereas in other parts of the world, that's a little bit more of the, of the, the, the construct of kind of society. So our societies yeah. are much more open and we care much more about like multi-generational living and giving. And so there's, there's a different motivator, but we've talked a lot about these tax incentives we have. And I mean, you know, we know that corporations that have corporate um, social responsibility arms get tax breaks. And so we don't understand yeah. why, you know, individuals who, who do and, and fill some very serious gaps in our communities aren't offered the same, you know, it's one of the advocacy projects that we hope to kind of work towards slowly <laughs> you got to yeah. pick your battles for sure okay i want to switch gears entirely um okay. from philanthropy to the world of sesame street to everyone the is uh, to the muppets um <laughs> yeah. a lot of people are very familiar with the iconic sesame street show um that was you know that people know in the States with Big Bird and Elmo and all that stuff. Um, give me some backstory. How did you first become involved with Sesame Workshop? And what was the first project um, that you were involved in to bring it to another cultural context? Okay, so we don't have enough time for me to tell you the true backstory. <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> other, that's like a four-part miniseries. Um, yeah. but essentially, essentially the, you know, the very kind of quick, quick and dirty story is I was living in Cairo. I had just broken up with a boyfriend. I needed to get out of Egypt. I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And my mother said, <clears throat> you've always wanted to live in New York. You should go live in New York. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's not that easy. She's like, oh no, it's that easy. Just go to New York. So I went to New York. Um, I, you know, hooked up with some friends, whatever. And then at one point I met this other person who I fell completely in love with. And this person knew someone from his family who was consulting for a group of people doing some show in Egypt. And he was like, Naila, you know, why don't you talk to this woman? Because I think she knows someone in New York who's looking for an Arabic speaker. And I was like, I mean, I just, I'm not going to just cold call some woman on some yeah. show. You don't even know what the show is. He was like, no, I think it's something with the Muppets. I think it has something to do with puppets. Anyway, one thing led to another. I ended up having this interview with this very interesting guy, um, a phone interview. And he was very, very dismissive of me. And he's like, I don't even know. Like, what are you, uh, where are you from? Where are you? <laughs> it was just like a very strange. Um, and then he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm leaving. I'm going to Cairo for the next couple of weeks. I, I'll come back and you just remember to call me because I won't remember you. I was like, well, this wow. is lovely. Um, 
Then apparently, what I've been told is that he then called his partners in Cairo, and I had worked in the production um, industry in the film industry uh, prior to all of this. I used to be a model on um, commercials. <laughs> this is ridiculous, but I used to do commercials. <laughs> I paid for college by doing um, TV commercials. Sure. For nine years. So wow. I was a pretty well-known face um, uh, in the region. And and so he called these production people and was like, I got this call from this woman, Naila, and she says, and, and the guy was like, Naila Farui? Yeah, no, she's legitimate. Like she actually, she is, the, you, should, you should hire her. So 20 minutes after this horribly dismissive phone call, he calls me back and he's like, I think I owe you an apology. Would you like to come in for, <laughs> would you like to come in for an interview? That's how I got the job. I mean, and I was like, I was bottom, 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 bottom of the ladder. Yeah. I was a, I was a PA, um, which is totally fine. I mean, as it should be. And I, you know, got his laundry and got his coffee. And also a lot, he allowed me to sit in on every single meeting, every brainstorm session, every, and the, the first project ever was the Egypt project by complete coincidence, Mikey. Like I took yeah. this Egypt project and the woman they hired in Cairo a week after I got my job to become the executive producer on the Egypt side was one of my absolute best friends in the whole world. Okay. Amazing. So, yeah. So cool. Okay. So I want to ask you, how much did you know about, so for people listening, I wonder how many of them know that there have been for decades Sesame Street adaptations in Arabic. And I'm asked, I guess you're the first person I'll ask, were you aware of the 1970s Kuwait uh, version, the Kuwaiti version, if Simpson? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was. I hadn't watched it regularly, but I used to, um, my grandmother and my grandfather were uh, Palestinians living in Jordan. And so I used to go to Jordan every couple of, uh, I mean, every couple mm -hmm. of months. And so I used to see it there. So I know the song. I mean, I could sing it, you know, by heart, even right now, this many years later. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I was aware of it, but I had, I don't think, I don't know that in my mind at that time, I had made the connection that that was Sesame Street. And just so that, you know, I didn't grow up on the American Sesame Street, even though I went to American schools and I was very mm -hmm. kind of entrenched in American, uh, in Americana culture. But I used to summer my, my mother was a dancer and we would go to the U.S., to New York specifically, almost every single uh, summer. And I would go to camp and like, you know, acting camp, blah, blah, blah. And I always thought Sesame Street was like this really honestly, Mikey, like I never realized the impact it had on, on American pop culture. I just thought it was like a little mom and pop shop type of, <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's a couple of people in the studio doing a never realizing like the magnitude of this, yeah. this uh, movement, this education movement. So that was my understanding of it. So I, I, right. I changed, obviously, my understanding very quickly. But yeah. yeah. So, you know, when I was preparing for this, um, and when I first asked you uh, if you would be willing to do this interview, I foolishly thought that Sesame Street was a show in the States, and then they had Sesame Streets in Japanese and in, uh, in Mandarin and in, you know, like... Um, Swahili and in Arabic and French. And I thought that it was the exact same show overdubbed like Captain Majid. That's what I figured. And then yeah. as I was doing research for this, I realized that there are many different shows and with many different names. Um, so how many, just, let's just talk about the Arab world for a second. 
how many versions of Sesame Street are there in the Arab world like today or over your tenure? Um, and uh, we have Shaira Asimsim on the screen right now, which is this, I think, the Palestinian version. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that's Hanim and Karim. Um, so, yeah, Shaira Simsim, Kayat um, Simsim, which is the Jordanian one, and Adam Simsim, which is the Egyptian one. Iftahya um, Simsim, but that's no longer... Um, actually, Iftahya Simsim had a really kind of sad story because... In in uh, the 1990 um, invasion of uh, Kuwait, Iraqis damaged and ruined all of the the, the videos of years and years and years, like really? 20, wow. 20 some years. Yeah, they burnt it all down. So we have very little. I mean, we I, st I still say we, and I'm so kind of embedded in that sesame uh, in the sesame family. But yeah, yeah. It so there's no the people tried to save and then we just never we could never find like it. None of the none of the very TV little archive, archival. What do you mean? None of the TV shows still have what? If the Simpson, like the original tapes and stuff like that? No, no, they I mean very, very, very little archival material. Wow. Yeah. So those were the ones, and then now there's another, there's a new um a new Iftahiya Simsim, which is a kind of pan-Arab, uh, that's that's uh, produced out of the UAE. Okay, is it? I think I have it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Maybe this is it. So, I mean, walk me through the sort of nuts and bolts of it. So there is, let's use like Shera uh, Simpson. Who are the writers when, it, you know, um, how is the how is the production sort of in line with the Sesame brand? I mean, how does how does how do you do this functionally? How do you create these franchise franchisees and make sure that it they work? You know. Yeah. So Sesame has a very obviously tried and tested model um, that they'd been using since 1969, and when we would go to different countries to establish a new adaptation. It would start off with a lot of research. So, you know, I mean, I don't know if you know, but like um, Uber fact <laughs> about Sesame Street is it's the it's the most widely researched television show in the world. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So every single episode, every script, every every image is is tested before it is put on air. So, you know, these adaptations would start with a, a, a you know, a, a convening of intellectuals, educators, even pediatricians, just to kind of get a an understanding of the scope of the child's world in the country that we're working in. Um, and then that would result in white papers that kind of inform our work. And then it would be several kind of production trips where the executive producer at that point, it would be me and my team would go to country X. So whether it was, I mean, Palestine, I inherited. So I never, I didn't start Palestine from scratch. But I started Bangladesh from scratch, for example. Um, so I'd go to Bangladesh and meet everyone that works in production in Bangladesh. Everyone that you can possibly think about. Seriously, like I would just put out a call. And I think I, over the course of maybe three trips to Bangladesh, I might have met 50 different producers and production companies. Um, and then you put out an RFP. And it's like, it's a very, I mean, it's an eight-month process. Yeah. It's been up to a year. 
And, and then we just train and train and train. So some, we would go to Bangladesh with our team of creative writers and puppeteers. It's, it's magic. I mean, it's making magic, literally. Um, wow. And yeah, you just train them on the principles, but they write everything from their own perspective, from their own culture. Um, and then, you know, you kind of guide them through the creation of their own characters. What is the name of the characters, the backstory of the characters? Like, it's just, it is, it's magic. It's an absolutely magical experience for everyone involved. And the idea, so that's why it's a workshop, right? So it's like, it's, you're like literally workshopping this yep. whole thing into existence. Um, yep. What is the sort of long-term vision for these types of things? Is it like, okay, listen, we are going to, you know, Jordan or Kuwait or wherever, and we are workshopping this whole idea from the ground, finding producers bringing puppeteers over, training them, giving best practices, um, helping create new characters, uh, ideating new scripts, all this different stuff. And the idea is that this is going to be an institutional show that exists for the next 20 years. Is that the idea or is it like a five-year contract? We're in, we're out. And so, you guys will then go create your own shows that have nothing to do with us. Yeah. I mean, no, This the idea originally always was know be as sustainable as you possibly can for you know at in, in perpetuity um yeah. but that wasn't always aligned with the reality of the funding so sesame workshop is a non-profit um and, and you know if if you follow any of kind of like the the evolution of sesame workshop as an institution itself it was you know fully funded um by government funding by u.s funding u.s government funding and pbs funding um so individual donations and then slowly started getting some, you know, in, independent foundation funding. Um, and then for the international shows, I mean, almost, I think almost exclusively every international show that I worked on was funded by USAID or some other um, institution like USAID. And those tend to be kind of limited in scope, but limited, I mean, like eight years. So the Bangladesh project yeah. was an eight year funding by USAID. The, what the, the misalignment with reality was we never I don't feel like we spent enough time equipping our local partners to become sustainable themselves. Mm -hmm. So we always had this expectation that at some point Sesame Mother, you know, Mother Company would withdraw. And for you to continue to to to, um, to air a Sesame project, it would have to be under the guidance of. So there was some vetting you know, some vetting kind of mechanism that would be put in place, but we no longer wanted to have to spend all that money on it. And yeah. we I don't feel like we ever really equipped our partners. And that was kind of one of the points of uh, contention. So, you know, the Egyptian Sesame Street lasted, I think, 15 years. Um, and then the funding ran out and it just couldn't continue. Uh, and then a lot of them got folded under uh, the Siftahiya Simpson, the new iteration. I wonder what this looks like um, in terms of given new distribution models with YouTube, um, what this sort of looks like, the, the business model going forward. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I'll be honest. I don't really know. I mean, you know, it's been, what, yeah. 12 years now since I've left. So I don't know enough about what their day-to-day -day is. I mean, I'm in touch with all of my Sesame family because these people I was with from my 20s to my 40s. Um, yeah. But I... Uh, I don't know enough about what they're doing in terms of their business model, but I will say, I mean, Sesame, Sesame Street itself um, changed its distribution completely, right? So it, it gave first 
uh, first airing, first broadcast rights to, P- to HBO, um, yeah. which a lot of people were very upset about. And then second airing rights nine months later to PBS, which is where its original home was. But, you know, from a business perspective, they just couldn't afford it anymore. They couldn't be as magnanimous and just give it over to PBS. It just wasn't yeah. it wasn't being funded. It, they should just do it on YouTube and have ad revenue. They, that's that's what that's maybe what they he'll be do. watching this and they can take this advice. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that's the most sustainable, the most sustainable version. OK, let's do the quick Q&A and then we have a question in the chat. Um, so these are sort of rapid fire. The first question is, what have you been reading or watching these days? Uh, Mikey, don't ask me that. I watch everything and I read everything. So literally everything. Like I think right now I'm reading a George Simenon uh, uh, translated, what am I reading now? Lot 41, I think, some crime, French crime, very gloomy. Um, and I'm also about to read um, the uh, Maggie Haberman book on what's his name? He Who Shall Not Be Named, okay. uh, the, the former president. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then I'm watching everything. Everything. Okay. Like I just, yeah, I consume a lot of media. <laughs> Me too. I relate to you. Good. <laughs> we're reading the same things and we're watching the same things as a terrible. Amazing. Okay. Um, who would you love to shadow for a day past or present? I mean, for good reasons or for bad reasons? <laughs> whichever one, whichever um, one you want. <laughs> Only has to be a day. So I guess. Oh God. I mean. Yeah, just honestly, any Republican. <laughs> I'd love to see what goes on. What goes on in those heads? Mm. Okay, we'll keep going. <laughs> yeah. What do people most misunderstand about your work? That I give away money. Mm. The number of times I have to tell people I am not a funder. Please stop asking me to fund your mosque or your school. Yeah, yeah that I'm not a funder. And whose work do you admire or, or are inspired by? Oh, my goodness. So many people. So many people. I mean, I've, I've, I've honestly been, I think I'm one of the luckiest people that I've ever met with the number of mentors and people whose work and kind of like ethos I admire that I've just, yeah. I mean, I, almost everyone, I would have to say, honestly, without exaggeration, I'm not trying to be like kitschy and cute or anything, but almost anyone who's in my life is in it because I admire something about who they are, what they do, how they yeah. do it. Um, you know, whether it's temperament, whether it's like their intellectual capacity, like just, yeah, their heart. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So let's, we have two questions in the chat. Um, the first comes from Reed and it said, the question is, you spoke about how in Lebanon giving is religiously driven. I actually did not know that that was the case in all NGOs. There's a, uh, that was the case in all NGOs. There was there. So my question is, what about organizations like the Lebanese Food, Food Bank or Unite Lebanon Youth uh, Program, which do not seem to be religiously based or even educational institutions like AUB or LAU? Yeah. That's a, that's a very good question because, I mean, actually the organization that we worked with to present a, um, an amendment to the constitution was the Arab Human Rights Fund, which is also not a religiously based organization. So it doesn't have to be, the, 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 the institution doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to have a religious affiliation, but it has to affiliate itself with one of the religious mechanisms for giving. It's, a, it, it's just a weird sort of loophole in the... Um, they have to like structure. choose a lane. 
they have to choose a lane and stick to it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Is this the case in places like, uh, like, uh, you know, Palestine or Jordan or Egypt or Morocco or. No, that a... kind of restrictiveness. No, no. Yeah. Okay. This is a, a uniquely Lebanese problem. Yes. Well, okay. you know, Lebanon, mashallah, <laughs> unique in so many ways. <laughs> Lebanese exceptionalism. Um, okay. So uh, I was always impressed with the, ex this is from Leith. Um, I was always uh, impressed with the extent to which Sesame Street is embraced in the Middle East. But did you also encounter resistance in production in terms of local, quote, values being seen as possibly targeted by the show or, lo or are local institutions for the most part accepting of educating children about the world and enabling them to make their own informed decisions? Ooh, Leith, amazing question. Um, yeah, no, it was not always, <laughs> it was not always smooth sailing at all. Um, so, I mean, in Egypt, I know, for instance, we had, um, we created a character called Khoukha. And Khoukha was this gorgeous, lovely, adorable, kind of peach-colored uh, girl Muppet, who I think was about seven years old. And we, the, the team that wrote her wanted to have Kocha embody all of these independent values and, you know, she characteristics. She was independent. She wanted to play soccer. You know, she had a song about all the different things she wanted to be when she grew up. And not one of them was like traditionally, um, you know, female. And we got pushback. We got pushback. You know, like even things as simple, like questions as simple as from, from the broadcasting, um, the Ministry of Broadcasting, for example. So they would ask things like, or the Ministry of Information is what it was. They'd ask like, you know, is Hoka playing in a co-ed team? <laughs> You're just like, really, guys, come on. She's seven. She's a Muppet. Stop it. Like, stop. Um, they'd ask questions like, are you promoting, you know, it, it, it kind of inter uh, uh, intergender relationships, stuff like that. So we did get some some pushback on that front. Bangladesh, we got pushback, interestingly, from our funder <laughs> to say that we, and this is a whole other, I mean, we can talk about like the politics of some of these things another day, but we got questions about, um, they wanted to make sure our funder, USAID at the time, wanted to make sure that we were instilling messages around defiance of uh, authority. So when we asked the person to explain to us exactly what she meant, she literally said, you have children in this country who are raised to be seen and not heard. And they are raised to take for granted what their parents tell them about faith and about, uh, you know, um, radicalization and uh, kind of, you know, Islamic fascism or whatever it was. And she said, and we want you to infuse messages of kids standing up to their parents and saying no. And we were like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Um, because by the same token, on the other side, a lot of in, in many cases, Nigeria was one case, uh, South Africa was another case, Bangladesh was definitely a case where the pro the production companies would ask me usually because I was usually the only non-white person on the team uh, for a long period for a long time, and they would say like, "Are we, are you guys going to be indoctrinating us, or are we going to be held to some sort of?" accountability by the donor to in, infuse kind of American messages or Western messages into our, our work. And I, you know, I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of conflict. I personally faced a lot of conflict in, in, in fighting against that kind of thing. So yeah, there was, there was pushback. 
Very interesting question and a fantastic answer. Uh, Nayla, we are out of time. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Um, I really, really appreciate it. So this conversation is going to uh, show up on YouTube and up on our podcast tomorrow. I put a little link into the chat. If you want to find Nayla online, it's very easy to find her um, and go find the the forum, uh, which is also pretty easy to find. And uh, we will see you all on Friday. Great. Thank you so much, Mikey. And Reed, I will reach out to you. I took your your, uh, email, so I'll reach out. Thank you so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.